It's Tuesday, September 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro and Options, the one and only Jeff Fisher. And from the great white north, as promised, the fabulous, most groovy, <laughs> Jim Gillies. You work on so many services, I didn't even know where to go with that. We, so. we can go Options and Pro Canada. How's mm-hmm. that? All of those things sound good. I've never been called fabulous in, in my entire existence. So and thank mo- you. And most groovy. And most uh, groovy. <laughs> uh, long time. It's been a while. First time in calendar year 2017. It is, yes. Here. Was it something I said? Um, you know, it, or was it many, many things? It was I said? Many, many things you said. And well, it's good to have you in the studio. It's nice to be back. We're going to dig into some of the aftermath of uh, hurricanes Harvey and Irma, and uh, we're going to talk automotive. We're going to go big picture on the automotive stuff quickly, though. Uh, Apple is holding their event in about 90 minutes from when we are taping right now. We're actually doing a Facebook Live at 4 p.m. Eastern. So, for the very few dozens of listeners who listen to this podcast before 4 p.m. Eastern, hop on the Facebook. We're going uh, to be talking about the event. But at this point, there's, there are rumors of what Apple is going to unveil. There are educated guesses. I'm curious, Jeff, I'll just start with you. What is what is one thing you're going to be looking for or listening for from an investing standpoint at the event today? What a good question. Thanks. <laughs> not my first show. <laughs> you know, I, I, I am not very concerned about this event. I think Apple is executing really well. I think the new iPhone, it's going to have enough features that it's going to indeed be a super cycle of, of tens of millions of sales the coming few quarters alone. I think uh, the Apple Watch is the top-selling watch, uh, we are told, by revenue in the world. And a new one is expected, and probably will bring in some new buyers as well. Uh, The mobile, I have an Echo at home and a couple dots as well, and we use them each day. But I would switch to an Apple Home product, or at least add one, if they execute well on that as well. So, it's not just one thing, Chris. It's really all these things converging. Apple needs to keep leading, clearly, in phones, wearables, and they need to break into the home market in a, in a real way to make all these things meld. It is pretty impressive that we've talked before about tech companies that get to a certain size, and then they kind of plateau in terms of what they're able to do in the way that they are able to meaningfully reward shareholders. And here we are, 10 years after the unveiling of the iPhone. And even just the Tim Cook's and his team's ability to sustain the enthusiasm is impressive to me. The fact that there is all this build-up to the event. And as we fully expect, they're going to unveil this, among other things, this brand new phone. And then it's going to be you know another few weeks before it's actually available in stores. So, the showmanship of, of Tim Cook and his team has been sustained uh, after Steve Jobs' death. He, he really learned from the best, didn't he? He did. Yeah, um, he really did. The, I was just saying beforehand, I, I've recently upgraded to an iPhone 7. So, for a brief, <laughs> brief few moments, I've been at the cusp of technology, and after today, I won't be. Obsolete. Uh, uh, story of my life. Um, but I mean, like, I, I, what's been interesting to me is to see some of the, the, the articles on the periphery. Uh, because I, I actually agree with everything Jeff said. I agree that, you know, from an investing standpoint, 
this doesn't get me too excited. Doesn't make me terribly disappointed. They're still going to have billions of dollars of cash. They're still going to be producing billions of dollars of cash, and they are meaningfully returning it to shareholders. So we haven't seen the, the kind of the run of grounds like uh, some of, uh, shall we say, the the, the other companies that have tried and failed. A certain Canadian company called Research in Motion comes to mind. Um, you know, but that you know, you've seen the periphery. The stories are talking about like, well, what they're going to introduce today. Samsung had this six months a year ago. Uh, you're seeing, you know, like, well, what are you doing for us lately? And so it almost feels like it's going to be one of these, uh, you know, short-term prediction time. It's going to be one of these, uh, you know, buy the rumor and sell the news kind of thing, where it's like, what does Apple have to do? Like, if it if it is the promise of this super cycle, mass upgrades across a great many people who are not me. Um, you know that that portends only wonderful things for the finances of Apple, and yet it, it seems like at least the articles I was reading this morning talking about this seem fairly pessimistic or kind of like yeah yeah, yeah it's going to be awesome then what? <laughs> and so I, I, I must have read four or five things like this morning. I'm like, hang on, this is like the world's most valuable company producing you know the signature product, the 10 year anniversary of of the iPhone. What do you people want? Yeah, <laughs> you so know, <laughs> it feels very. Dis- it, it, it felt kind of odd to me as I'm going through the news. Yeah. Jim, that's funny. The Washington Post on Sunday had an article in the business section critiquing Apple. Like, where's the innovation? They've lost yes. their mojo. They've. Lo- <laughs> I wanted to go online and defend Tim Cook. I mean, what are you talking? About? But he doesn't need my help. <laughs> but reality is, they they keep innovating a lot. I mean, Apple Pay is great, easy to use. I use it whenever I can. It's much quicker than chip cards now. Uh, the watch is a great product. I have the Series Two watch. If you don't have one for a few hundred bucks, pick it up. It's a cool. I, ha- I have a Garmin watch. <laughs> it is good, and and one perk is it makes you check your phone less frequently because you get enough on your watch, uh, and it's things that you need to get as well. So they're innovating all along the way, and I think we'll see more of that today. And I find it funny, comical even, that people are accusing Apple of no longer innovating when. I mean, that's all they're doing. It's almost been continuous. It's just that it's yeah. not, they're saying, well, it's the iPhone changed our lives yeah. 10 years ago. Well, sure, in a minor way, but you couldn't take a picture with the iPhone when it came out. I mean, it's changing your life incrementally now all the time, still. Yep. Yeah, it is. I mean, if if you want to do just a little bit of a fun deep dive, just go back and look at what you could actually do with that first iPhone 10 years ago. And just imagine for a moment that whatever phone you have on you right now has been substituted with that thing. And when I say that thing, I mean that relic. Because as you said, Jeff, there were so many things with that first. And it was completely revolutionary in 2007. Mm -hmm. But now, if someone gave you that phone, you'd just throw it at them. (laughs) Um, All right, let's move on. And and I should start with the fact that... uh, you know the the hurricane Irma. I think is is still technically a storm, although a, a far weakened one. And yet, the fact of the matter is that there are millions of people across the southeast United States, in Florida, in Georgia, who are without power, uh, including some of the dozens of listeners. So, um, shout out to Valencia, one of our dedicated listeners in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and to Valencia, and really everyone out there who is dealing with the aftermath of. Of Irma, and also for everyone in the Houston area who's still dealing with the aftermath of Harvey. Uh, just, uh, I guess, on a non-investing note, I would just say on behalf of everyone here at the Motley Fool, hang in there as best you can, because 
storms are dangerous um, and don't last all that long. The aftermath, the cleanup, the rebuilding, that's the part that takes a long time and requires a lot of patience. So, just hang in there as best you can. To the business of the hurricane aftermath, uh, Travelers Insurance announced they are suspending stock buybacks as they try to figure out what their losses are going to be from these two storms. And this seems like the 100% sensible move. Absolutely. Um, you know, they're, yeah, if you're, you're dealing with this huge unknown, you don't know what it's going to cost you. Your business is helping to pay for these types of events and cleaning up after, uh, you know, tragic events and, and, and massive storms like this. Uh, you don't know that it's likely they've probably offloaded some of their exposure onto reinsurance companies as well, but you know they're going to have a significant exposure. And their stock's not terribly cheap, frankly. And so buying back a not terribly cheap company or like, your, your own shares, uh, it's about 1.4 times book value. Uh, I believe, um, not uh, 12 times earnings, but really from an insurance perspective, we look at the book value. They're, the, the, the buybacks they were doing was probably more maintenance than anything else. It's not a screaming value, and I think it's absolutely prudent to be doing this. Uh, you know, and, and you look at, I mean, I, I was actually reading up on Berkshire Hathaway over the weekend um, where they've done a lot of, they obviously have a lot of insurance operations as well, and they've said since uh, 2005, the Katrina, the Rita, the William, Wilma, kind of the three sisters, if you will, um, they've actually scaled back on their catastrophe writing because the pricing hasn't been great. And of course, Buffett and his, his uh, side man, uh, Ajit Jain, are very well known to be like, we're going to, we want to tilt the odds in our favor. For someone like a Travelers who's much broader, um, you know, if they, if they have not scaled back, they could end up having, discovering in the very near future that they've been writing some somewhat unprofitable business. So yeah, absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, and a nice reminder to always look below the headline because the head like and I don't think I'm alone in this but my gut reaction anytime I see any sort of headline where it's company X and then it is followed by they're suspending their stock buyback program or they are cutting their dividend my in the moment reaction is always negative like well that's that's trouble. That's a problem. <laughs> um, but this is not, and I forget the name of the company, but whoever it was earlier this year who came out and said, we're cutting our dividend by 75%. And in that case, it's like, oh, yeah, no, the, you guys are actually in trouble. But in the case of travelers, it's just smart leadership. And buybacks are a big part of what they've done. The past 10 years, Chris, they've reduced their share count by more than half. They wow. had about 700 million shares in 2006. Now they have 280 million shares. So giant. Decrease, and they do plan to continue that strategy until there are no shares at all. Um, <laughs> I've never well, seen it, one like that. <laughs> it, it also helps them increase the dividend every year, typically by ten percent. Even despite that ten percent increase, they pay less or about the same total because they're buying back so many shares. So, it has been a big part of their value creation for shareholders, and that's why the stock maybe dipped a little bit on this news. But as Jim said, it makes perfect sense. You you need to see what you're. What your liabilities are yeah, because I mean, it's, their buybacks are about 80, 70% of their net income and the dividend is 25%. And what you've just said speaks to a, you know, a long term, well thought out capital management strategy. So if you've trusted them in that kind of performance, having dropped their share count by nearly half over the last decade, More than if, half, you, yeah. if you've enjoyed that, and you think that that's been a good good deal, why would you not then trust them to say, hey, we're just going to put us on hold right now while we 
take a look at what we are actually facing here. You know, you hope they haven't written unprofitable business, but until you can until you can ascertain that properly, you know, it's a good move. Do you guys have a preference of what you would rather see a company do with their capital when it comes to raising a dividend versus buying back stock? Is there is there one you would prefer to see? So many companies have become so accustomed to making significant share buybacks that is now part of their flight plan, and that's how they're going to get to their earnings per share goal. And that's good in some sense, but maybe not so good in others. And and one way I think in which it isn't great is that salaries are not going up the way they would have historically. And so if consumers are not being paid more, the economy doesn't grow as much, and so on and so on. It's just the company reducing its share count, and only shareholders benefit, whereas greater society could maybe benefit if people were paid a bit more instead of these massive buybacks. I probably come in on the uh, the side of it depends. You know, it's always that you know, definitive answer. It depends. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about what's the valuation of travelers, and it's it's not overly expensive, but it's not overly cheap. Uh, so you know, if if I see a company that is you know very clearly, you know, been knocked down in a raging bargain, I want management putting as much as they possibly can into buying back the, their own stock, presuming that there's not like you know some really good secular reason why the company's in decline. Um, but if the company is highly valued, you know, I like my dividend. I don't necessarily want to sell my shares and incur the, the you know, unfortunate capital gains consequences. So, by all means, pay me a bit more dividend. You have to. You also have to see how many shares they're issuing to insiders. Mm-hmm. As yes. are they just papering over that dilution with their buybacks, or really creating value? Yeah, we bought back a million shares, but you know, we just gave the CEO nine hundred thousand. Yeah, in free in free new shares. So that's not really a buyback that benefits me as a shareholder. Exactly. Uh, Yum Brands is uh, putting the whole notion of there's no such thing as bad publicity to test. Uh, so Yum Brands, parent company of Pizza Hut, um, making the rounds on Twitter and in social media is a memo from a Pizza Hut manager in Jacksonville, Florida. Who, as Hurricane Irma was bearing down on Jacksonville, Florida, uh, this manager put up a memo to all employees, basically saying, "Hey, if you're going to evacuate because of this little Category Five hurricane that's about to hit town, um, that's going to be considered time off." Yeah, and we close the store typically <laughs> six to twelve hours before the storm hits. Because you know what I want before a hurricane destroys my home. I want a pizza. Yeah, there's so much that was wrong with this, starting with calling everyone team members in the in the note, and then kind of saying you're our slave who has to work here. Yeah, um, you're not really a team member in that case. Uh, but where this uh, is egg on Yum Brand's face is this is a franchisee; mm, right. they don't own yeah. the store. And this is not corporate policy, right? And that's where you have to look to Starbucks, who has decided to. To own all of its own stores, and it can build a better brand over time because of that. Um, this is one disadvantage of franchising your stores. Uh, I read the memo that he posted, or he or she, the manager posted, and I think the intention was, and I'm I'm going to take flack for this, maybe, <laughs> was to to provide service to customers in a way that was not disrupted unduly by the storm. It said, you'll still have plenty of time to evacuate and so-and-so, but it was extremely misguided and not well thought out. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the person is a bad person. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not going to assume that's the case. Yeah, I think not... they meant 
to be the best manager they could be, but it was hopefully they'll never make this mistake yeah. again. But it also speaks to the power of social media now. We would have never heard about this even six, seven years ago, maybe 10 years ago, definitely not. Yeah. And now giants, even like Yum Brand, have to watch what every franchise does because it can come back and bite them just like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's this type of public shaming, we'll call it, um, has been interesting. And you, you saw uh, another example with Hurricane Harvey a few couple weeks ago with the, uh, uh, the megachurch preacher whose name Joel escapes Austin. me. Him, yes. Um, you know, he, I think, got taken to task on Twitter as well. And, and so uh, maybe, maybe it's Twitter's fault. But yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, I, I saw this morning that, yeah, Young Brands was like distancing themselves from this manager. And now what, what the blowback, and again, I, I think uh, Jeff is uh, correct here, you know, that the, this pro- person probably didn't mean like horrible things, was probably thought they were helping, probably thought they were, you know, offering good management at a time of crisis. But they are now probably going to experience their own time of crisis because I don't think the corporation has they're going to have their back here, and they already kind of distance themselves. And this kind of comes across as overmanaging. Well, and to bring it back to you know full circle to Pizza Hut, there were managers of Pizza Hut uh, franchises in Houston who were getting all kinds of credit because they were giving out free pizzas. There was there was uh, one woman who's um, a manager of a Pizza Hut in pregnant who's pregnant. And she was kayaking pizzas to people who were at you know at shelters and and that That's sort of great. thing. So it's like all this tremendous goodwill, and it's uh, a, a lot of it has been given up as a result. Um, let's close on a completely different topic, and I tease this at the top. And this is this was as I've uh, told uh, people from time to time when they're like, "How do you put together the show? How do you?" Um, how do you pick your topics? And um, a lot of times, it's um, me sending a note to whoever's going to be on the show and say, well, here are a few things we could talk about. What would you like to talk about? And um, I emailed a few ideas to you guys. And uh, Jeff, you sent a note back because uh, you and Jim were together. And and um, uh, you said, hey, Jim thought it might be interested, uh, interesting if we talked about um, countries uh, instituting an ice ban and I looked at that and I was like, countries want to ban ICE? Like, what? <laughs> but it was, and then I was like, oh, wait, it's all, ca- it's ICE, it's all capital letters, internal combustion engine. Yes. Okay, there we go. Countries aren't looking to ban ICE because wow. who wants nothing but warm beverages? But, um, <laughs> um, but this is, I mean, you were saying, Jim, before we started taping, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but my take from what you said right before we started taping was, this might be one of the biggest and yet simultaneously undercovered business stories going on right now. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. I think it's uh, you know you're, the, what, what, what catalyzed this huh, electrochemistry joke in there um, is that uh, <laughs> sorry um, is is that you know there's there's rumblings that China is going to join other countries like uh, France, I believe Britain, about putting a timetable on when they're not going to allow internal combustion engine automobiles any longer. Allow them to be produced or allow them just on the roads, period? Little, little column A, little column, column B. I think, I imagine, you know, if you buy, a, let's say the year is 2030 when uh, one of these countries is going to ban these cars, I imagine if you bought a 2029, you know, gasoline-powered car, you'd probably be fine in, in terms of, you know, grandfather it out, uh, but that eventually you would have no 
you know, pollution spewing. And if you've, you've seen pictures of Beijing and Shanghai and some of the, the horrible uh, air conditions in some of the cities in China, you understand why China's now talking about doing this and joining in. But I mean, that has the potential to completely, of course, overturn you know, so much of what we ha- have in the business world. So you start saying, okay, well, you've got countries outlawing gasoline-powered cars. Okay, what does that mean for the car makers? You know, what is Ford, Chevrolet? How are these car makers going to respond? What are they going to do? Volkswagen is already talking about 25% of their cars being all electric by a certain date. GM, of course, has the, the Chevy Bolt coming out, which they are very keen to tell you, has a longer range than the Tesla Model 3, which of course is Tesla's mass market. What is this going to mean for oil production, oil companies, everyone sitting at $50 a barrel oil versus three years ago, $100 barrel oil? This is actually very important from where I sit up in the Great White North, because our market is very tied to resources. So there's all kinds of Canadian investing pundits who are saying, well, when oil comes back, I'm like, if, if the world is moving away from I, uh, ICEs, oil might not come back in the way you think it might come back, which then takes off a lot of production in the Canadian oil sands and what have you. So it's this huge, many tendrilled story that I'm not sure there's any direct investing implications that I can draw yet. Uh, and Jeff might be faster on that one. But, but I, I, I think it's this huge story that has this great potential for change that, you know, and, and we're all worried about the Apple event today. <laughs> Not worried about it. Well, you know what I mean, but that, but that's what that's what gets the headlines, right? And and China, unlike a, a France or a, a, even a U.S. or Canada, should we go down that road? I mean, China. If if, if the China Brain Trust says no more gasoline powered cars, they they kind of have what you know, total authority. Like they're going to do it, and, right? And you're done, right? So I, I there's all, so many implications. Uh, you know, I think you could be thinking about this for years, kind of thing. So. Yeah, definitely. You have France and the UK banning these engines by 2040, which sounds far away, but it isn't too far. You have Norway hoping to get there by 2025, which is very soon. India by 2030 will only sell battery-powered cars, or at least not combustion engine cars. This is all pretty close around the corner. Netherlands, 2025. Germany, 2030. And now the word is or the rumor is China by 2030, I believe, or 2040. I, I one think, of, I think one it's of 2040 for them. But I mean, so these are giant changes, want. but and they sound almost impossible, but they're really not. If anything, they're lenient. I mean, how quickly did General Motors move to tank production and for World War II? It was changed over its assembly pretty quickly. We have the technology now. You could probably get to all electric if it was decreed. It must happen within five years. You probably could do it. So giving people. 20 years to do it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, what does it mean? It means a lot more competition for Tesla, uh, but obviously a, a, lot a more much validation larger market. For Tesla yeah. too, right? Yep, exactly. But uh, we've talked before about, uh, just, just to go completely away from automotive, about companies that have innovated in a particular industry and their idea ends up being the winning idea, but over the long run, they end up not succeeding in the way that, say, for example, an apple has succeeded. So, you can look at organic food and point to Whole Foods and say, they were revolutionary in what they were doing, but then large companies like Walmart and Target and others said, oh, we can, we can do organics. We can't do it 
maybe to the level that Whole Foods is doing it, but we can get organic enough. Yeah, and Chris, you know what usually drives that? It's the competitive barrier and its pricing power. If you can keep your prices and keep your margins like Apple, and that's a point I should have made earlier, we expect to see the average selling price of the iPhone actually go up. Yes. Ten years ago, nobody would have ever said that it would go up. Everyone said, pricing's going to come down, they're going to lose their high margins. That hasn't happened. It does happen to a Walmart, or, or really, I should say, to a Whole Foods. You have competition move in, you have to fight on price, just as we saw, and your margins go down. So, will that happen to Tesla? It has the brand cachet to fight that off, and the technology, frankly, technology lead to maintain premium prices so far. But yeah, that's exactly what you're talking about, Chris. The leader ends up, their margins get eaten away, and they, they no longer lead in the same way. Or they get out-innovated. I mean, I mentioned earlier, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I mean, Research in Motion was the smartphone maker of the early 2000s. Yes. Right. They, they, and then when the iPhone came out, they mocked it. They had 41% market share, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Today, it, I mean, they're staring up at it's 1%, lower. hoping to eventually <laughs> get there. Right. Lower. It's lower. Um, but no, I mean, like, yeah, but they, it's because the, the incumbents, the incumbent in the industry, the incumbent leader didn't see what was coming in as a threat. So, I mean, is Tesla going to see what's coming as a threat? Do they see this, the bolt as a threat? Probably not. You know, you know when we're really going to know that electric vehicles are here to stay? When someone starts charging people money to charge their car. Because right now, it's like, oh, well, I could pay. You know, part of the economic proposition of buying an electric vehicle is like, well, I'm, I don't have to pay for gasoline, and I can just charge my, you know, my car for free. At some point in the future, a gas station is going to go out of business, and in its place is going to be a charging station. Can I can I tell you that's already happening? Really? Yeah. Uh, over this past weekend, Tesla, of all people, opened up full-service charging centers in Boston and Chicago, where we were. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and they are I, I right now. I guess the I guess I'm, I'm not too sure about the mechanics of it with the S versus the X versus the three. But they're saying that uh, buyers today, which I presume is the three, because I thought the S and the X always get uh, free charging. Uh, they get a thousand miles lifetime or per year rather of free charging, and after that they're going to be charging for an amount there. So I mean, what, what are they charging? I, I don't know. I'm, they're charging the car. It's <laughs> a, a lot of charging that's going to go but, on. But I mean, I, you're exactly right. Like you're going to start seeing people for. Um, because a friend of mine has a Nissan Leaf, which is another electrical vehicle, uh, doesn't ha- quite have the range of uh, the three and one or the or the S, and so to go to Toronto from where we live, which is less than an hour away from Toronto, we'll quite often stop and charge up at a free thing in, in like the middle of an industrial parking lot, and it's free, but we're kind of standing around. It's like oh, you know, a supercharger I'm would sorry. be nice. I, I mean, an hour long drive, and you got to stop and yeah. charge your, your car. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty. You should weak. just ride a bike. <laughs> but so you have Been to there, ask. Done that. <laughs> you have to ask where all this energy is being generated. If it's coal generated. Defeats the whole purpose. It defeats the purpose, and but I mean, so China, a- everyone else trying to move to solar and other clean sources. So then, Chris, it all comes full circle, of course, to what happens to the oil giants. What does their future look like? I just know I wouldn't. I don't own any. No, and I, I and, no and we avoid to. that. I, I said, you know, of course, Canada being there's a lot of resource stuff in Canada, and we try to basically stay away from anything with direct exposure because, you know, uh, maybe you guys can, but I've never met. I certainly can't predict the price of oil or gas with any kind of confidence, and I've never met anyone who can. So it could be like cigarettes. You know, the cigarette usage in the U.S. has declined for decades. Morgan Housel 
points this out to us, and yet Philip Morris has had has been one of the best performing stocks on the entire market, or whatever it's called now. I don't even know. Altria. 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 Yeah. Okay. Still a terrible name. All these years later. <laughs> Um, maybe oil giants will do that for some reason. Maybe emerging markets will keep. But here's the difference, I think, though. Emerging markets are moving, they're leapfrogging right to the cleaner, in fact, now mm. cheaper in many cases, energy sources. And so, mm, could spell trouble. It's not a great for name. For oil. But it's still better than trunk. Trunk. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like back in Chicago? Has the Tribune building been renamed the Trunk Building? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Didn't see it. So pathetic and sad. <laughs> All right, Jim Gillies, Jeff Fisher, thanks so much for being here, guys. Thank Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Fuller. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.